Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. My guest today is Ray Kowalik, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Burns and McDonald, one of the nation's premier engineering, architecture, and construction firms. I would like to say, Ray, that I envy you. I envy engineers. They hold the keys to the future as well as being responsible for much that makes life worth living in the present. When I see power lines, which we see quite frequently, I see comfort, security, and middle-class life. When I look at a building stretching to the sky in New York, I don't see a building. I see an engineering miracle, and on and on. And uh, making all of this work, holding it together, and pioneering for the future is electricity. Ray, your company is very involved in electricity and has been, I think, since its founding in 1898, correct? That is correct. Splendid. Uh, how do you see the future? There's a huge effort to remove the carbon-based sources of electricity, the fuels, which are natural gas and especially coal. Yeah, I think we have an incredible opportunity and an incredible challenge ahead of us. If you think about our energy sources traditionally and where we're heading in the future, it's going to be a challenge. Um, currently, we're at about 60% uh, of our electricity production comes from fossil-based fuels um, from an energy perspective, and that's coal and natural gas and a little bit of oil. And how we're going to build an infrastructure around renewable energy and other sources of energy, whether those be uh, alternate fuels that are carbon neutral or nuclear is gonna be very critical. As I always say, there's, uh, there's four things when we think about our energy sources that we need to think about. One is it needs to be safe, it has to be a given, it has to be environmentally conscious. We have to take care of our environment, it has to be reliable and available, and then finally, it has to be affordable. And if we look at all our energy sources, uh, all four of those at some point play a little better or a little worse in our energy future. Ray, your company has 10,000 employees, and I think the revenues are over $5 billion. And that's a pretty substantial company. Is all your work to do with the electric utility industry, uh, and, or is it more diverse than that? We have about uh, 10,000 employees and, and about six and a half billion in revenue. And probably about a third of it comes from the energy sector, uh, electricity, electricity production, um, taking care of existing electrical sources and transmission and distribution lines, um, both replacement and new ones. So it's a big part of our business. And we're number one in the United States in that business line. There is something of a struggle going on between the speed with which renewable resources can be brought online, how dependable they will be because they tend to be intermittent. We're talking almost always about uh, uh, wind and solar and uh, the phasing out of fossil fuels, especially natural gas, which is so versatile and useful and so favored by utilities in a, in a perfect world, that would be their fuel of choice in most instances. Um, how do we make that change without, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Yeah, it's it, it's going to take a long time. I think the challenge I see is it's a math problem. 
it's a math problem with uh, how much of our electricity is generated from carbon-based fuels now. It's a math problem on how fast we can build alternative energy sources. It's a math problem on cost. And so you throw all those factors together um, and you throw in that other sources of CO2 need to be curbed in the United States besides electricity. Right now, our CO2 emissions in the United States, about a fourth of them come from uh, the power generation sector. About a fourth come from transportation. About a fourth come from uh, industry. And then uh, about a fourth come from agricultural and uh, heating sources and residential. So, you know, right now we're looking at the equation solely from the electric generating uh, facilities. And when we take that hole into play, which need the same sources of alternative energies, it's an incredibly daunting task. Um, and we can get there, but it's gonna take a while. It's gonna take decades, not years, not five years, not 10 years, not 15 years, it's gonna take decades. So how we do that in a responsible way to keep our lights on, keep the quality of life uh, that we expect and to keep, um, keep our electricity affordable so we can compete in an international marketplace is going to take uh, take some ingenuity, and I still believe that the only way we get there long term is besides uh, solar and wind, we have to have to uh, bring nuclear back into the uh, discussion at a much bigger level. Nuclear is getting suddenly after after many decades of being abused in the public debate is actually getting some credit. Uh, first of all, we have small modular reactors. Secondly, uh, as the nuclear plants we have continue to operate safely and efficiently, uh, the esteem is rising. And finally, uh, we now have a breakthrough apparently in fusion, but that's in the far distant future. Uh, but small modular reactors, that's what's caught everybody's fancy. And there's tremendous amount of excitement. My basic question is, how will we deploy them? Will we deploy a variety of them? They all use different technologies, all those coming into the market, the most advanced is new scale, which is light water, that you have uh, many others. Uh, and uh, there's about six that waiting to be deployed. Uh, can we afford to deploy six different technologies? We haven't done very well at that kind of spread in the past? Well, if you look at the math problem and you look at it worldwide, not just in the United States, there's room for all six. And quite honestly, I think the better technologies will come to the top through time and there probably won't be six at the end of the day. Uh, and all have great safety and great uh, environmental stewardship. Uh, you've got incredible energy density. Uh, basically zero emissions. Um, obviously, you have the, the spent fuel issue with all the technologies, uh, but they're, they're all vying for an incredibly large market. So there's room for all of them. And uh, we're, we're working in several of those technologies. Uh, one of them uh, is a newer technology. We'll use something something about this size. It's a pebble size 
where the fuel is inherently safe because it is inside of a ceramic ball and it can't reach temperatures for meltdown. So you can't have, you don't need water, you don't need electricity for inherent safety. And all the technologies are becoming much and much more about inherently safe so that if something bad happens, we lose electrical power, you lose cooling media, that the technologies continue to be able to be safe. And I think we got room for all of them. I think the challenge in the nuclear industry, and it will be a challenge moving forward, is can we make it cost effective? And if we can make it cost effective, all the technologies will play. Our kind of, uh, I'll call it uh, high level math says that if you look at renewables, specifically wind and solar, and then you add in battery storage or energy storage with it, and you compare that to the cost of a new modern nuclear plant and levelize the cost of electricity, it's probably somewhere in the order of magnitude a nuclear power plant would be around for cost of electricity produced at around 50 to 60% of the cost of a renewable energy source like wind or, or solar that's intermittent with some energy storage. And I'm going to completely ignore grid upgrades because I think all will have some kind of a, a cost factor that goes with uh, the grid upgrades that will need to go with any technology. So uh, I think if we look at it from a reliability, availability, and a cost structure, it's going to make sense. Um, obviously, it's a huge financial risk to the people that are going to be first to the market with it. And I think that's one of the great things that DOE has done and our government have. They put some money into helping um, with that cost in this new type technologies as they come forward. And I think that's going to be the key is uh, getting some uh, the first takers proven and get out. And I remember this is going to take a while. Uh, it's an incredibly arduous process through the uh, regulatory process and rightfully so. But we need to uh, we need to make this investment for our our sake and for our kids and grandkids sake. The way it's going, where every bolt and every every piece of steel, every piece of concrete, every component has to be approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is both very expensive, but it's also very delaying, and it isn't in favor of innovation. It tends to favor that which is known. It's as though the Federal Aviation Administration was standing at Kitty Hawk watching the Wright brothers and saying, you can't do that and this shouldn't do this. I think the focus really needs to be more on um, the inherent safety features, right? Is, is this fuel inherently safe as opposed to every nut bolt and piece of concrete that goes on there? If it doesn't play into the nuclear safety aspect of it, the uh, release of um, you know, radioactive materials, then let's not put such a big focus on that. Let's let do normal industry practices. But if it's a feature that is important to the safety uh, reliability and to uh, releases, then we should have some obvious incredible uh, scrutiny about how to do that to make sure it's safe. We actually have one reactor, a new scale reactor at Idaho National Engineering Laboratory, but the commercial operator plan for commercial operation under construction. The Tennessee Valley Authority is agreed to buy two of a different design. Uh, but behind all of this is the idea they will be manufactured in factories. And 
the components will be shipped and they'll be put together much the way we put buildings together now. How do you feel about this assumption that costs will be controlled by off-site manufacturer? Well, off-site manufacturer needs to be part of the equation, right? Because we have to, uh, we do this in all industries is uh, use a controlled environment instead of a environment where every worker is new to the job site working in the open elements and so you can have repeatability and controllability inside of a modular uh, someplace modular where we can build this stuff a facility so i think it's going to have to be a part of that uh, this uh, the answer to this to control cost but at the end of the day we're still going to have to put it in a location and connect it up and build it that will require a lot of field labor associated with this construction also. But as much as we could control and in a controlled environment um, will we'll benefit us all. The nuclear plants we have are all between 1,000 and uh, I think 1,380 megawatts, uh, which was the, the limit imposed by the NRC. Um, you talk about energy density, you mentioned it somewhat in passing. I think it's important that people understand energy density. Uh, uh, my explanation is that a nuclear power plant at 1200 megawatts replaces uh, maybe a thousand windmills. How, how do you characterize that? It's very hard for people to understand that a single windmill, windmill does not actually make that much power compared to how much you could make even in a coal-fired power plant. Yeah, energy density can be measured a lot of different ways, but it's about the footprint. I use the term footprint that you need to make the the power. So, you know, maybe a you know 600 acre site could make a thousand megawatt of, of of nuclear power. But when you look at the fuel source, specific fuel source, and how much density is in the uranium to allow the fuel to be such a small part of that plant is what I was referring to energy density. But if you look at the amount of land and space needed for wind and solar, if you wanna build a thousand megawatts of solar, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of acres uh, and wind turbines over hundreds of acres. So it's also a, a density problem in space, um, but it's, it's you know, a nuclear plant, probably similar to the size of a gas fire generation or coal fire generation as far as a footprint. And if we can make them safe, we don't have to have as big of exclusion zones around them. And I think that's going to be the key is if those become inherently safe, they don't have to worry about all these different scenarios that would cause a release of radioactive materials. Then you can continue to make and make smaller and smaller sites to do this on. And, you know, the rest of the area around there, the exclusion zones will can be used for other things. Right, so it's not like they go to go to waste. So uh, energy density is two ways: the actual amount of energy in the fuel, and also density of how much land that we need. Engineering is about evolution, as well as solving an immediate problem. How much evolution are we seeing in solar and wind? Uh, are we making these things more efficient, better, less impact on the environment? less waste when they are finally jettisoned and with wind are we saving any birds every every technology has or has some inherent issues with it right 
you know, solar takes a lot of land. Uh, irrigation of solar panels is uh, pretty rapid. Um, the wind turbines, you know, take up a lot of space and they're out in rural areas and they're generally not where people live. So you got to build transmission lines. Uh, the technologies are getting better. Now, I will say, I think we've kind of hit the, um, the floor on costs because we've noticed in the last uh, couple of years, all the technologies, the costs are actually starting to come back up uh, because we've gained a lot of the efficiencies that we can from the technologies. Uh, battery might still have a little ways to go. Energy storage from batteries might still have a little ways to go down. But uh, solar and wind are now about at their low points and maybe even rising now um, because of raw materials. Now, how well they work and the efficiencies are still improving. And uh, technologies now about how to, to make the solar panels so they can go with the, with the site contours instead of having to be a flat land. And um, there's just... We're, we're getting better. We're getting better all the time. Technologies uh, get better all the time. Uh, and, you know, the wind turbines now are being repowered with more efficient uh, blades. Uh, we're right on the cusp, I think, of finally getting offshore wind going in the United States, which is uh, much more reliable and dependable because of its uh, wind profile. So we're, we're continuing to make strides the problem still becomes a math problem of how much wind solar and energy storage we'll need in the batteries we're going to need all of those efficiency gains and evolutions plus a lot more you've just introduced my next uh, field of questioning and that is it is generally expected that the demand for electricity will double between now and 2050 uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that we're building new generation of any kind fast enough to meet such an expectation. And one of the things I hear all the time is that one of the new uses for this electric electricity will be electric cars, EVs, but that they can be plugged in at night and used to help the utility along. But there really is no structure for doing this. There's no the math has not been done as to what the utility will pay you for using your EV or your F-150, which people are looking at F-150 lightning electrics as though they are going to be the second coming, that they're going to be that revolutionary. I, I don't know. You tell me. But, but how are we going to get from here to there if we're going to go to uh, reduce carbon by 2050, to carbon neutrality, the government is calling for, and doubled demand that would seem to me to be very hard to back out all this natural gas at a time when we are trying desperately uh, to increase the supply of electricity partly to back out carbon making transportation yeah as i mentioned earlier you know a fourth of our uh, co2 emissions come from transportation fourth come from electricity right so in a fourth come from industry that uses uh, um, heat or fossil fuels in their production. So the math problem becomes exponentially bigger when you start talking about electrifying the fleet and electrifying industry. And uh, just replacing uh, the fossil fuels in electricity alone, you know, we're talking multi-factors times what we've built so far in renewable energies. 
So it's uh, you talk about the supply chain of building all that infrastructure, the um, you know the the mining, the production facilities, the construction, all the all the materials needed to build it, the interconnects. You know we can't get a transformer in certain industries now for two to three years. So this is a a a worldwide challenge that is not uh, going to be uh, fixed very quickly or very easily. Um, and that's why I believe uh, we've got to make that transition through more energy sources than just wind and solar. And uh, we're going to need them all. You know, to think that, you know, where's hydrogen play or ammonia play or where does carbon capture play, you know, on existing gas or coal-fired generation, we're going to need all these energy sources as we continue to grow our electrical need. And that electrical need is could be double. It could be more than that in the next uh, 30 or 40 years. So uh, we're going to have to take a lot of tools out of the toolkit to get there. Burn, uh, is Burns and McDonald working on carbon capture and storage? Because if we effectively could remove the carbon, from the natural gas and even from the coal, but particularly from the natural gas, the whole equation would change very radically and very quickly. Yeah, there's for sure. We're working on both uh, on the natural gas side and on the coal side. Um, again, it's uh, it's a lot of uh, uh, the issue versus, and I think this is where uh, some of the misnomers come from, you know, we as a society through technology have reduced uh, sulfur, SO2 emissions, carbon monoxide emissions, uh, nitrous oxide emissions tremendously through technology. But when you look at the stream of product that comes out of a combustion process, those, uh, those items are very, very small, very minute. So the amount that you have to take out and what to do with it is very manageable. The problem with carbon capture is uh, the amount of CO2 produced through uh, this process of combustion is a ginormous amount, you know, thousands of times more. And so uh, how are you going, what are you going to do with it once you do it? Are you going to uh, geolock? geologically sequester it, use it for enhanced oil recovery, which is kind of a, I think, a short-term thinking. Um, so I don't think right now we have a good idea what we'll do with that CO2 once we do capture it. I think the engineering um, industry can solve the problem of capturing the CO2. What I struggle with is uh, what will we do as a society to store it permanently uh, once we do capture it, and that's not uh, that's a that's a much bigger challenge, much bigger challenge. Let's talk about engineering as a career. I see your daughter is in engineering school. Obviously, you have inculcated her with a love of the trade. Um, you made it hereditary in your family. And for young people, what are the advantages of engineering? And at what point do you decide whether you have the skills to be an engineer, the native talent. There is the feeling, and it's gone on for a long time now, that if you're numerate, you should be an engineer, and if you're literate, you should be a poet. Um, engineers, I think, are somewhat better paid than poets, so I would urge everybody to be an engineer, a little late for me, but um, uh, what is your feeling at this point in time? 
Are we educating enough engineers? Have we made it an attractive enough educational option and following that an attractive enough career? Yeah, you're you're near and dear to my heart. Uh, we uh, we spend a lot of our efforts in outreach to students and building a pipeline uh, in the engineering fields, uh, starting all the way from grade schools all the way through our colleges. Um, I'm a huge believer that it is uh, where innovation comes from. It's where job creation comes from. Uh, as I always uh, told my daughter, I go, you can get an engineering degree and then decide to go do something else. Um, whether that you want to go, uh, you want to go run a company or you want to be work at a McDonald's, doesn't matter. You can go do whatever you want to do um, once you get an engineering degree. But vice versa, if you get a different degree, you, know, you get a marketing or a business major, you can't move into the engineering field. You've got to, uh, you've got to have that technical background. And I think the real, the real good thing that comes from engineering school is logical thinking, math skills, and problem solving. And quite honestly, those skills transcend in anything you do in life. And if we uh, use a little less emotion in decision-making and use a lot more science and math and logic in our decision-making, uh, the world would be a better place. That's very interesting. Of course, that is an engineer speaking. Uh, that is not the voice of a novelist <laughs> or a painter. I would point that out. Although I have long maintained that it is foolish to go along. You remember the, the, the novelist C.P. Snow who wrote about these two cultures, uh, which never got together, the numerate and the literate, I'm inclined to think that they can get together more often uh, than people recognize. Many, many engineers down through the years have said to me, oh, help me with your my writing. I can't write, I'm an engineer. Then I read it and I find they write perfectly well. Yeah. And although engineering may be daunting to us on the writing side, the only reason anybody knows anything about engineering is because we wrote about it. So at some point, the, these two do come together, and uh, they shouldn't. Uh, there shouldn't be the sense of separation. As you know, the British had a thing called eleven plus, where at age eleven they decided the numerate go this way and the literate go that way, and never the twain shall shall meet, uh, which seems to me rather unfortunate. Um, I agree, and I think that's a that's a challenge for engineers. And uh, we look for well-rounded engineers, educated. Uh, you think about the maybe one of the greatest artists and engineers of history, right? Uh, you look at Da Vinci, right? And he brought uh, both together and was maybe one of the best innovators in uh, mankind ever. And so, how we get uh, those skill sets together uh, will will create a lot of um, ingenuity and innovation. I, and I think you're exactly right. We need we need both skill sets to actually uh, create something special. Ray, thank you for an enlightening and fabulous interview. And uh, I wish my tie were engineered to come apart as I usually pull it off. But uh, the engineering is not sympathetic to that operation. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.